If you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We've been making our way through that little by little uh, each week. And last week, uh, Josiah, Pastor Josiah, preached from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. And this morning, I'm going to circle back and focus our, focus our attention on Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And I know at this rate, some of you are probably wondering, man, we're going to be in Luke for years. Yes and amen, we are. (laughs) We're going to be here a while, and it's a great book to settle deeply into. But this morning, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And that verse just simply says, but quite powerfully says, uh, this is the message from the angels to the shepherds, but also to us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So I was thinking on that verse, and I was thinking of all that, that's going on in our world, the, the global pandemic, the social distancing, uh, the economic upheaval, uh, the, the nation divided, all uh, the political tension, city violence, right? Uh, there's also racial or ethnic tension There's moral corrosion. We have gender confusion. All sorts of just crazy things going on. And 2020 has been quite the year. And I'm sure many of us are ready for 2020 to end. But I would just ask you, do you think 2021 is going to be any better? It might be worse. It might be worse. I don't know. Are you anxious? Prone to grumble and complain? Are you exhausted? And maybe you're you're wanting to despair and say, look, look at what the world has come to. Maybe in some ways, Mary and Joseph and, and others uh, in Israel were, were tempted to say much the same. What is, look what the world is coming to. We're, we're the Israelites, God's chosen people, but we're under Roman rule. And here I have to travel uh, all the way down to Bethlehem with my pregnant wife to be registered by this Roman power that rules over us. What, look at what the world has come to, right? You can kind of hear them say that. The, the darkness, uh, the, the Advent lighting that we had this morning about hope and the light that has come to those who are sitting in what? Great darkness. The darkness in, in their day and, and, and the darkness in our day. And again, we're tempted to say, and to say look, look what the world has come to. But what Luke chapter 2 verse 11 is, is saying to us this morning, is encouraging us with this morning, is instead of saying, look what the world has come to, it's saying to you, look who has come to the world. So instead of this morning being filled with that despair and again crying that out, look, look at this world and the mess and the chaos and, and all of that. Instead, Scripture is saying to you this morning, no, 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 don't focus on that. Look who has come to this world. Look who is here with us. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, uh, talks about this, this Jesus who was born this day in the city of David and we're given three titles. He is a Savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. That is who has come into this world. And I'm just going to focus our gaze on him this morning, considering Jesus the Savior. 
Jesus the Savior, and then we'll consider Jesus the Christ, and then we'll consider Jesus the Lord. So Jesus the Savior. Just thinking about naming babies. Some of us are are better at that than others. Uh, I I have heard some pretty crazy names that are out there, but there's a couple of them this morning I'm going to share with you that I think take the cake. (laughs) Uh, there's, There's one where a family agreed to name their boy goldenpalace.com. That's what they named their boy. And yes, that is the name of an online casino. And they agreed for the amount of $15,000 to name their boy goldenpalace.com. Would you do that for (laughs) $15,000? Or there's another one. In in 2011, there's an Israeli couple who like Facebook so much, were so enamored with with Facebook, uh, that they decided to name their daughter Like. L-I-K-E. Like. Like you know what you do on Facebook, but if you like something, Like. That's their daughter's name. Like. So some of us are better at naming uh, our children (laughs) than, than others. And I share that to say, imagine uh, being Joseph and Mary and this miraculous child in their room. Imagine trying to name him. Imagine being faced with that decision of, what would you name this miraculous child that's been virginally conceived, who will be great and be son of the Most High and reign forever on the Davidic throne? And I know, thankfully, uh, Mary and Joseph didn't have to wrestle with that because the angel said, you will name him Jesus. But man, imagine trying to name him. And just the significance of that name. Why did the angels say that Jesus would be named Jesus? That this baby would be named Jesus? What's the significance of the name Jesus? And I think we know that historically, Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua, or as we're more used to hearing it, Joshua. Right? Joshua. And if you remember from the Old Testament, Joshua was the name of Moses' successor, and he's the one who led the Israelites into the Promised Land and defeated uh, the Canaanites. And Joshua's parents originally named him, if you remember, Hosea. That was his original name. But, but Moses renames him Joshua or Yeshua, no doubt because of his faith that the Lord would use Joshua uh, to uh, give victory in the Promised Land. So this name, Yeshua in the Hebrew, or Joshua in English, or in the Greek, Iesus, or in the English, Jesus. Why was he named that? What does that mean? It means the Lord is salvation. So Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Savior is redundant, right? Jesus means Savior, and He is the Savior. He lives up to His name. Why name Him Jesus? Again, it communicates that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior. He is our Savior. And yes, historically there have been many Saviors sent by God. Noah rescued his family from the worldwide flood by building the ark. Moses rescues Israel from Egypt. And and time doesn't even allow to consider all the prophets and judges and, and, and those who are instruments in God's hands for deliverance. But now, Scripture is saying here in Luke 2.11, now the ultimate Savior has come. The Savior, the Lord has come. And He has come to save. But save us from what? That's the ultimate question. Save us from what? And we are not left to wonder. 
In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we read these words again from the angel to Mary, or <clears throat> from the angel saying, actually, I'm sorry, this is a quote from Isaiah, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why is he named Jesus? Because he will save his people from their what? Their sins. So he's named Jesus because he's our rescuer from sin. Yes, his salvation will be physical. Uh, there's a day when he will return and all the world will be renewed. Uh, I'm sure we'll be singing Joy to the World one of these Sundays. And in, in that song it talks about how uh, as far as the curse is found, that that, that will be reversed. And that's true, when Christ returns, His second coming, He will bring an end to all the creation's groaning. And at that time, our lowly bodies will be transformed into His glorious body. That's the physical aspect of His salvation. But primarily, His salvation now, as we focus on it, is spiritual. As Matthew one twenty one says again, He will save His people from their sin. You see, our main problem is sin. And it's guilt. And the fact that left unforgiven, this sin damns every one of us to hell. That's the fact of the matter. Jesus came to save us from sin and Satan and the righteous fury of God. Seen in this light, Christmas is very disturbing. I say that because when you start to look past the lights and the trees and the traditions and the presents and, and you listen to the Bible's message on why Christmas is necessary, it begins to be disturbing and shake the very core of your being because the Bible is plainly saying that Christmas is necessary because you and I are sinners. Christmas isn't about buying the best gift, getting the biggest present, singing the carols, dreaming of a winter wonderland. Christmas is about our sin and the fact that you and I are glory robbers. And, and Josiah talked about that last week, right? Jesus is glorious. He's glorious. He's the glory of the gospel. Glory to Jesus. Glory to God in the highest. That's only right. God and God alone is worthy of glory and praise. He's the self-sufficient one. He's holy. He's infinitely glorious. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He created all for His glory and praise. As Pastor Josiah talked about last week, His glory is greater than the brightest burning sun. And if, if He was to peel back His glory, uh, we would have a, a less chance of surviving than a tissue paper on the face of the sun. That's how glorious he is. And you think about that picture and that idea, then the sin, at the, that the center of our sin is we want the glory. That's the essence of sin. Jesus is glorious. God is glorious. But we say, no, I want that glory. I want it for me. Glory to me in the highest is our cry. That's the essence of sin. Glory hugging. We don't get what we want, so we get angry. We lust for power. We lust for sex. We lust for material things. We're prideful. 
We're glory hungry. We don't like to share attention. We, we want the pats on the back, the strokes to our egos. We, we thrive on applause. We drink up compliments. We, we want attention. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Talk about me. Make much about me. We treat God's gifts as if we deserve them, as if they're our property. We boast about what God graciously gives. We show off about our money, our looks, our skills, our education, as if God had nothing to do with it. And He had everything to do with it. In all of this and so much more, we rob God of His glory. We are glory thieves, glory robbers, glory hogs. Our lives exist for one purpose, to make much of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, uh, and, and to display that to, to the world. But instead, in our sinfulness, we make it about us. I heard someone describe it this way once. He said, imagine attending the 2014 New Year's fireworks show in Dubai, which cost nearly $6 million. That's a lot of money. It was the world's largest fireworks show ever. So imagine being there, the $6 million uh, fireworks show going off. That would be something else. You gaze into the sky in amazement. You can probably feel uh, the rumblings, the explosions in your chest. Maybe even have to gaze your eyes off a little bit because it's so bright. So such a powerful display. So imagine you're, you're experiencing that, but in the midst of it, a little seven or eight-year-old kid comes up to you and starts pulling on your pant leg as you're laying there looking up and watching this amazing display. And what that little six or seven or eight-year-old boy or girl is trying to do is sell you a ticket. So you will come watch him fire off his Roman candle. you realize that little boy or girl who's pulling on the pant leg, your pant leg, trying to get you to buy a ticket to watch him fire off that one little Roman candle, that's you and I. That God is exploding in the sky and all around us in fantastic, indescribable ways, way more than $6 million worth, His glory. And we're trying to rob it with this little Roman candle. Who do we think we are? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We're so full of self, full of sin. We want to be sovereign. We want to be worshipped. We set up our own little kingdoms and we punish those who break the laws in our kingdoms. We tell ourselves that we're entitled to what we want, when we want it. We complain if we don't get it. We throw a fit. We yell. We shout. We rage. We murder. We destroy. All of that is sin. It's all glory robbing. We're all glory thieves. Are you disturbed yet? I hope so. This is why Christmas is necessary. Because you and I are sinful sinners seeking to rob the God of the glory that belongs to him and that is wicked. That is disturbing. And that is why Jesus was born. Amazing grace. That's why he was born. He was given to us to save us from our glory-hogging self. Jesus was born to live a sinless life in obedience to God the Father. 
to suffer as our substitute on the cross, to satisfy God's righteous fury, to defeat death, sin, and Satan, and to secure our salvation. Think about this. Christmas is about God the Father who is deeply offended, rightly so, at the fact that we have sought to rob his glory. He is deeply offended by that, but he graciously takes the initiative to send his only begotten Son to be offered up as an atonement for our sin so that we might be forgiven, so that we might seek his glory and no longer seek our own. Christmas is necessary so that we might stop trying to impress people with our little Roman candle, so that we might be free from our self-focused glory, and so that we might be caught up in the glory of God and say with John the Baptist, one of my favorite verses in all the scripture, He must increase. What about me? I must decrease. That's the cry of everyone who believes and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the cross humbles us. The cross and the manger, the, the animal trough, humbles us. It helps us to see our desperate condition. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 says this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul adds that phrase at the end. Remember what he writes? Of whom I am the worst. Paul, who was inspired by God to write a, a vast majority of the New Testament, a great missionary, apostle, used by God, says he's the worst. He's the worst sinner. Paul doesn't say, hey, you know, I'm basically a good guy and I mess up every now and then. He doesn't say that he's broken. He says he is the worst sinner. I'm the worst. He has seen the glory of Jesus and the cross and all he can cry out is, I am the worst. A minister once sat by the bed of a dying man in a nursing home and as they talked, the, the man in the nursing home began to recount some of his life and recall some of his past sins and this man in the nursing home started to weep and uh, was able to blurt out through the tears, I'm, I'm such a terrible, hell-worthy sinner. And the pastor, with, with all the love in the world, looked at him and said, that's wonderful. And sensing confusion in the man, that, that he would say that that's wonderful, that he confesses he's a, a terrible, hell-worthy sinner, he goes on to explain, that's wonderful that you know that. Because Jesus came exactly for those kind of people. He's our Savior. He's our Savior. Let me say it this way. If there was no sin, there would be no Christmas. If there was no sin, there would be no Christmas. So the point of Christmas is this. It is necessary because you and I are helpless, terrible, glory-thieving, hell-worthy sinners. And Jesus came to save and to rescue those who are helpless, terrible, glory-thieving, hell-worthy sinners. So this ugliness of Christmas brings us to the true glory and wonder and joy of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you know this, Jesus, this morning? Are you, I pray and I hope, I trust by the Holy Spirit, being disturbed by your sin this morning? Is that true of you this morning? Are you feeling deep in your heart and your soul that you are exactly that, a miserable hell-worthy sinner.
I've prayed that that would be true for each one of us this morning. That we would all recognize that about ourselves. Do you recognize that about yourself this morning? Are you disturbed by Christmas? And praise God. Would you look to Him in faith? Call upon Him to save you. And He will. He's mighty to save. He has come for this very reason, to rescue you who are disturbed by your sin. He is the cure. He and He alone is the cure for your sinful, selfish, glory-robbing. I invite you right now in your heart of hearts, stop competing for God's glory. Die to self. Die to sin. Look to Christ. Confess your sin. Confess your glory thieving to Him. Ask Him to forgive you, and He will. And He will save you. And He will set you free to live a life for His glory and praise and honor. The very purpose for which you were created. And it's so much better than your own glory and honor and whatever else. Look to Him this morning. Cry out to Him in your heart of hearts, and He will save you. And Christian, take joy. Jesus is your Savior still. He preserves you still. He sustains you in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is not a partial Savior starting the work but not finishing it. Jesus has perfected or started the work in you, Christian, and he will perfect it. He will bring it to pass because he is our Savior. He has saved you and he will, he is saving you and he will one day save you fully. That's our Savior. Put your eyes on him. He's also our Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. And it might surprise, surprise you to hear this, but I promise you Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's not Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. Christ is a title, uh, which simply means anointed one. Or in the Old Testament, it meant Messiah, which again just meant anointed one. Uh, <clears throat> anointing with oil. Anointing someone with oil is very, very significant biblically. Anointing, if you read through the Old Testament, was often done to anoint people or even places. Uh, so uh, kings were anointed. Prophets were most likely anointed. Priests were definitely anointed. The temple was anointed. Elisha was anointed to be Elijah's successor. Uh, we, we see that often in the Old Testament. But what the word Messiah or Christ especially points to is the ultimate Messiah or anointed one, this promised deliverer, this promised king who is coming, who will fulfill God's plan for Israel and all of humanity. So we read in Psalm chapter 2 of the Lord's anointed who will possess and rule over the earth. Or we read in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 about this anointed one, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are in bounds. That's the Messiah. And, and all throughout the Old Testament, there's this expectation of the Messiah, this promised deliverer, this king, who will come and save his people and transform the world and bring in the new age of peace and righteousness, this, this messianic or Davidic king. And the Messiah in the Old Testament is the most important individual in the world. And the angels are announcing this great news. 
Not only is this baby uh, the Savior, but he is the Christ. He is the Messianic King. And so I love verse 11 where it says, Unto you is born this day. This day. Unto you is born this day. The Christ. Unto you this day is born. And you are seeing the fulfillment of this promise of old. This promise that in all reality began in Genesis chapter 3. Where you have God promising to Adam and Eve a son, a child, a seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And you can trace that theme all through the Old Testament. You have the promise made to Abraham of a seed to bless all families. That from the tribe of Judah would be a lion. That from David would come an eternal king. This promise of Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. Finally, this day, this promise, finally, it's coming true. It's coming to pass. Promises, right? We, we've all made them. And we've all received them. We've trusted others and we've been entrusted by others with promises. We've all suffered letdowns. We've, we've had others let us down and we've probably let other people down more than we care to admit. We hear promises all the time. We promise, I'll pay you next week. I promise. This time is different. I, I really will be faithful. I promise. I'm, I'm not like that other person, I promise. I keep my word. I've, I've learned my lesson. I'll never do that again. <laughs> on and on it goes. Promises. Often unmet. And those unmet promises preach their own message. And the message that unmet promises make, or that they preach, is that if you set your hopes on people, you will be disappointed. If you set your hopes on a relationship to meet your deepest longings, you will be disappointed. If you trust in anyone other than Christ, you will be terribly and tragically disappointed. But set your hope on God and His Son, the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Messianic King, and you see that God fulfills His every word. That's the significance of what's happening in our text. Again, that word, today, the waiting is over. Today is the day in which God's promise gets delivered. We're no longer waiting. No more questions. The Messiah, He's here. Today, He's here. He's born. This promised one, this, this deliverer who will be faithful and perfect and, and irreversible in His reign. In Him, all of our hopes are fulfilled. In Him, all of our fears are resolved. In Him, all of our hopes are answered. What a day. The King, He's here. He's born. Go and see Him. Worship Him. Deliverance is imminent. Salvation is upon us. That's the message of the angels. All of our hopes fulfilled in this Christ. With one kind of caveat. <laughs> he's going to do this in a way you never thought he would do it. In fact, he's going to do this in a way that to keep with that theme will really disturb you and shock you and surprise you. Tur turn with me for a moment uh, to Matthew 16. Just to kind of see this for, for yourselves. Matthew Chapter 16. <clears throat> and in Matthew chapter 16, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 13. But in verse 13 is where you have Jesus coming to his disciples and he asks them that famous question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who, who do people say that I am? 
right, is what he's asking. And they gave some different answers, right? Verse 14, Matthew 16, verse 14. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So then he directly asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter gives uh, this wonderful confession. You are the what? You're the Christ. The Son of the living God. Just like the angels, Peter is confessing. He is saying, the king is here. You're, you're the promised messianic Davidic king, the anointed king who's going to bring good news and liberty and favor and comfort and salvation. That, that's what Peter is saying. You're, you're the fulfillment of our hopes and dreams and desires. And Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's grace. If your eyes have been opened to see that Jesus is the Christ, that's because God has revealed that to you. That's grace. That's wonderful grace. But Jesus goes on to say that he's going to accomplish this mission in a surprising way because you come down to verse 21 and it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now that's surprising. No one is expecting that. No one is looking for that. Lots of people were following him, uh, but they were not expecting him to be turned over to the Romans, to be mocked and spit upon and whipped and crucified. How can he be the Messiah? That's not supposed to happen, is what they would think and say. It's supposed to be the other way around. He's supposed to come and overthrow Rome and restore Israel to her glory. But, but Jesus teaches them, no, it must be this way. I must suffer many things and be rejected and killed on that cross. And Peter does what every one of us would have done, right? Remember what he does? Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus strongly rebukes. Verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Clearly, Peter and Israel's perspective need to be, needed to be recalibrated. And honestly, so does mine and so does yours. Because as the Messiah, there's something else with the significance of him being the Messiah. Look at verse 24. In the same context of just being confessed that he is the Messiah, verse 24, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, hold on, Jesus. <laughs> right? I'm all for the saving business. That sounds great. But this part? I don't know if I want to sign up for that part. But it's a package deal. We don't like that verse very much, do we? Well, maybe we like to read it, but experiencing that verse, how much do we like that? We're fine and we're happy about Jesus suffering for us. That old chorus goes, something about Jesus died and we're happy all the day. Really? <clears throat> we're okay with a suffering Messiah. As long as I don't have to suffer, suffer all you want. Christ. 
But the New Testament is telling us, Jesus is telling us, if you follow Christ, if you're going to have the mind of Christ, we must suffer with Christ. I know that's hard. That's very hard. And I, I want to experience the benefits of salvation. I don't necessarily want the consequences of a suffering with Christ. I want to follow him and have a comfortable, convenient life. But reality is, you can't follow Jesus and be a friend of this world. And I hope all that's happening in the world right now is really opening your eyes up to that. You can't claim Christ and expect this world to fall over itself loving you. You can expect the opposite. You can't be a follower of Christ and a friend of this world. The call to follow Christ is a call to die. A call to suffer with Christ. We really shouldn't be surprised by that. He's a crucified Messiah, after all. And there is a great promise that comes with this. Verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. That's a great promise. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I was once struck when I was younger, 17 or 18. It was shortly after I got saved by this quote. Hopefully I can say it right, remember it right. It goes something like this. My greatest fear in life is not that I will be unsuccessful. But my greatest fear in life is that I will be successful at that which doesn't matter. That stuck with me for a long time. That I will be successful at that which doesn't matter. And Jesus is telling us, quite frankly, quite bluntly right here, that if your life is not, if he's not your all-consuming passion, that is a wasted life. That you have become successful, that which does not matter. All of that and more is bound up in the fact that he's our Messiah. He's the anointed one. And to say it this way, he has anointed you with his mission. He has anointed you with his mission and saying, follow me and die. And in dying, live. And in dying, find all of your hopes and aches and fears satisfied in me. So then you can go and preach and share that with the rest of the world. That's what it means for him to be the Messiah. Following Christ will cost you your life. Are you willing? Is your eye, is your gaze, is your faith on him? So he's our Savior, he's our Messiah. Back to Luke chapter 2, verse 11. He is also our Lord. And that just makes sense as you think about that. He's our Savior, he's our King, he's definitely going to be our Lord. Now the word Lord is very significant for two reasons. One, that's teaching that Jesus is God. We miss that quite often. When it says that Jesus is Lord, that's saying Jesus is God. Because the word Lord comes from, is tantamount to the Old Testament word Yahweh, or Lord, capital L-O-R-D. It's tantamount to the very name of God. The name of God that was so holy the Jews refused to pronounce it. And we can't doubt that because of verse 9. Look, look, look at verse 9. That in, in two times in verse 9, God the Father or God Almighty is referred to as the angel, uh, as a Lord, right? So verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And then verse 11, Christ the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. 
He's not an angel. He's not merely a man. He's not merely a prophet. He is God in the flesh. And that should give us great joy. Great joy. But it's also significant, I know I'm moving quickly through this part, but it's significant because it means he's our master and our owner. The word Lord was used a lot in Jesus' day, a lot more than it's used today. In fact, they would actually call each other Lord. Kind of the equivalent to, to today is if you call someone Sir, or, or, or something along those lines. The word Lord was also regularly applied to Caesar Augustus. Remember him? Back from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He was Lord. His rule was absolute. If he snapped his fingers, you moved. He, he was unchallengeable. But very, very soon, the Christians would face a day when the Roman power would say to the Christians, you must submit to Caesar your Lord or die. And what the Christians would have to say back is, no, Christ is my Lord. And Christ is the Lord of Caesar. That's very significant, especially when you come to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's easy for me to read, confessing to say that Jesus is Lord. In fact, we can even kind of mumble that half-heartedly. But man, in Jesus' day and in Paul's day and the day of the apostles, for you to say Jesus is Lord, that's treason. That's penalty of death. It's no small thing, you see, to say for the angels to be proclaiming in the midst of all this chaos that the Lord, Christ the Lord, is born. He's here. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that he has a throne that's above every other throne, that there is a power above every other. It's to say the world is not out of control. And it is to say that God or Jesus has all authority over every Caesar or king or president or army or nation or person. To say this morning that Jesus is Lord is to say my life is not my own. It is to say that Jesus owns me. He owns all of me. You see, you can't divide Jesus. Please, please hear this this morning. You can't have on the one side, Jesus forgive you of all of your sins, and on the other side, keep on living as if he didn't. Right? You can't divide Jesus. You can't ask him to forgive you of your sins and then live however you want. That's not lordship. It doesn't work that way. That's not salvation. If you will have Jesus as your Savior, you will have Him as your Lord. May it not be said of any one of us here, well, he or she may say they're a Christian, but man, I think they're a whole lot more at home when they're doing this or this or this. You know, he or she may say they're a Christian, but man, it seems like they're more at home or a good deal more of a complainer or foul-mouthed or lazy or whatever you want to throw in there. Jesus is Lord. He's forgiven you of your sins. He is your messianic king, the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. And he is your Lord. And you will never know the joy. Look at verse 10 where it says, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You'll never know that joy until you surrender yourself to his lordship and follow him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So I say again, don't despair. 
Don't get caught up into the world that's saying, look, look, look at all that's going on here. Look at all that's happening around us. What, what's going on? You want to pull out your hair. Instead, look to Christ and hear the call or the message of the angels as saying, it's not, look at what's happening, but look who has been born. Look who is here. It's Jesus who is our Savior, who is our Christ, who is our Lord. He has come to save us from our sin, and He will one day save us physically also. New bodies and a new earth. He's our Messiah and will reign over us forever as our perfect Davidic King and fulfill all of our hopes and dreams and desires. And He is our Lord. Nothing is random in this world. He is in control. Nothing is catching him off guard. Stop looking at the world, at what the world has become and fix your gaze, your heart, your mind, your soul on Jesus. And let me just point this part out. Point this part out in verse 11. The word you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord you see how intensely personal that is? Unto you. Unto you is born this day. This great Savior and Lord and Messiah. Jesus came to be your Savior. Your Messiah. Your Lord. He came for that purpose. But you can't have his joy, you can't have his peace, you can't have his forgiveness until you can say exactly that. Jesus came for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Jesus is my Savior, my Messiah, my Lord. And, and notice the end of verse 10, where it says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Jesus is not limited to one particular people or social class. This message, this Jesus, is for you. He's for you. Look at who has come into the world. Look at who has come, and He has come for you. Will you make your boast this morning? Can you say this morning, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my King. Jesus is my Lord. Can you say this morning, it is not what is this world is coming to, but look who's come into this world. And I will rejoice. And I will live for him. And I will, this can take everything it takes, this world can throw at me to get me to stop talking about him. Because he's the hope, he's the joy, he's the peace, he's our all, he's our everything. Amen? Amen. So I invite the praise team to come up uh, and lead us in a song uh, talking about the salvation and the, and the Lordship and the great work that Christ has accomplished for us.